Jeff Robbins. Today's guest is a partner at Saul Ewan, who was twice appointed by President Bill Clinton to serve as the United States Delegate to the United Nations Human Rights Commission. A former U.S. attorney, he's also a syndicated columnist. He'll share insights about his work and his superpower. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show, where we empower you. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. It's just a thrill to connect with you. I'm elated at the invitation. Thank you so much, Devin. Well, you and I had an interesting experience um, in Israel recently. You and I were both guests of the uh, Israeli Foreign Ministry. And uh, I think one of the remarkable things that we experienced was as a couple of middle-aged white guys being among a group uh, where where we were my, uh, the minority in the group uh it it was a fascinating wonderful experience did, how did it, how did you feel about that visit and the group we were with uh, you know exactly as you say the for me i've been to israel a whole bunch of times for me the experience was being uh, with uh, five people of color very forceful very smart very sensitive very engaged, to put it mildly, on issues of race and identity and gender, talking about it, observing it, and the chance to overhear what they say, what they said, listen to their observations, listen to their passions, listen to their criticisms, was for me, and it sounds so trite, really humbling. I came away really moved by that part of the experience more than anything, I think. And for me, it was entirely new, I'm humiliated to report. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I am so rarely in that situation of being a minority in the room. And, uh, you know, it's happened. I've been to Ethiopia and, you know, a bunch of places in Africa. And, and you know, I'm kind of, you know, sometimes in a small group of white people. And so it wasn't the first, but, but it was so wonderful uh, to be just enmeshed for a week with a group of great, extraordinary people of a different uh, perspective. Uh, and ah, I just loved every minute of it. Just loved every yeah, minute. Yeah, I, I came away, I think like you, just powerfully affected by having my eyes open. There's no more clever phrase for it. My eyes were opened in many respects to how they saw things. Uh, and they saw things very powerfully, very passionately, uh, very pointedly, and they expressed themselves about it. And I did a lot of shaking of my head and thinking and soul searching. And I have to, I came away thinking, boy, shame on me for having taken so long to even put myself in a situation where I was able to see and observe all that through their eyes. Yeah, yeah, it it, it was. I, I I just loved every minute of that association. Jeff, you've done some uh, amazing things. Uh, uh, President Clinton appointed you a couple of times to the what was it, the Human Rights Commission? Uh, yes, it was the Human Rights Commission, and now uh, in a triumph of UN reform and bureaucratic uh, soul searching. They have now renamed themselves the Human Rights Council. So that's a, a terrifically substantive reform. You can imagine all the impact. <laughs> yeah. that. And, and Devin, I have to say, you know, I don't want to brag, but this the, the Human Rights Commission now council meets for six weeks a year. And just so you know the kinds of achievement that I, I had in that capacity in 99 and 2000, it turns out that I uh, 
set a record for the most hors d'oeuvres consumed by anybody in the history of the State Department in the six-week category, two years running. So <laughs> you're talking to somebody with a lot of bona fides. <laughs> uh, Jeff, uh, you're amazing. So, uh, you know, you had been working, I think, prior to that in the U.S. Senate and so developed a network in Washington. And, and uh, But tell us a little bit about your experiences, past hors d'oeuvres with the Human Rights Commission slash Council. Uh, experiences at the council or before that? Yeah, with it, with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, so the United Na- the United States has a tradition of appointing four so-called public delegates from outside the Foreign Service, from outside the State Department, uh, to attend the Human Rights Commission. Uh, and the idea, I think, was originated with Eleanor Roosevelt um, when the UN was founded. The idea was that there should be some expression of the uh, American public uh, at the council. And so the White House appoints four or five people a year uh, and to, to go. And I, I have to say it was, it was moving. I mean, on one level, of course, the UN is full of bloviation and nonsense and, 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 and almost, you know, Monty Python-like silliness in terms of the, you know, the, the, the rhetoric and the meaningless falderal. There is all that, but there's also a tremendous amount of idealism. Uh, the council every year is attended by hundreds of, of activists and refugees and, and victims and, rep- and advocates for victims. And as a delegate for the United States, the United States being the, the 800 pound gorilla, uh, there is actually opportunity to, to, to speak out on their behalf and to lend support to their various causes. And, and these are stories, some of them too long to tell today, but there were numerous times in those two six-week stints when I thought, my God, um, how wonderful to represent the United States. Uh, and with everything that we've got going that's problematic, what a wonderful thing the United States is at its best as an advocate for people, for, for, for those who, uh, whose human rights are not being respected. Um, and so I came away with it all very much moved by the opportunity to to speak at the UN on behalf of the United States and probably more substantively to kind of advocate a bit uh, for various human rights organizations and individuals around the world. This was not uh, long after, I think it was not the, the year that, but I believe it was not long after uh, Hillary Clinton rather famously spoke at, I believe it was a UN human rights convening in China, where she gave the now famous, one of the most famous lines uh, she or anyone has ever delivered, right? But she said, women's rights are human rights. Uh, How did that discussion that she started, or at least advanced with that speech, how was that uh, being discussed when you were there uh, in the shadow of that great moment? Well, I will tell you, uh, I remember quite vividly, this is 1999 and 2000, the last two years of the Clinton administration, uh, the American ambassador to the, uh, to the Human Rights Commission, the Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights, who was out there for much of the six weeks, Harold Coe, they were very cognizant 
of Hillary, of, of what Hillary wanted and Hillary's influence. Uh, she wielded a lot of influence on what the American position was uh, at the Human Rights Commission and I'm sure at other UN bodies. So she was very much respected uh, within the, uh, the United States government, as you might imagine it being the Clinton administration. And she played a very non-passive, let's call it that, role in pushing people in terms of what they said, what they did, and who we allied with. In addition, of course, she and the Secretary of State, uh, Madeleine Albright, were very close. So she had influence on those kinds of issues beyond that which I think most people appreciate. Yeah. Well, it uh, it is fun to connect with you and, and chat about that uh, amazing experience. Um, of course, one of the things that you have done now you're you're a lawyer you're full-time at Saul Ewing uh, as a litigator uh, but you also write uh, a syndicated column and uh, you know the sense of humor that you have um, demonstrated already today is uh, on evidence in your columns it's uh, I also see uh, your brilliance in, in other ways right you you are very uh, deft with the pen. So tell us a little bit about uh, some of the things that are important to you that you like to write about, challenge people to think about. Well, you're unbelievably generous and beyond beyond generous, uh, uh, but it's awfully kind of you to say these things. You know, I one of the papers that I write for is the Boston Herald, and the Boston Herald is the is the more conservative, let's put it that way, of the two uh, Boston newspapers, the other one being the Globe. And um, I, I think it's fair to say that the maybe the attraction uh, for me, uh, for the, the herald of having my column, is nothing about brilliance and nothing about deafness, but merely that, okay, they have somebody who is not necessarily, you know, uh, right off the dock at Nuremberg. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and the readers, uh, I think, uh, don't uh, love me a great deal. So there is the experience every week with that newspaper. You're right, it's syndicated. But with that newspaper of waking up on Tuesday mornings and seeing, uh, you know, various versions of why don't you uh, go back to where you came from, wherever that's supposed to be. And I actually feel as though it's you asked what I like writing about. I actually, I'm so appalled by Donald Trump. I'm so appalled by Trumpism. I'm so appalled by all of the viciousness and the brutality and the swagger and the corruption uh, and the and the um, the anti-democratic uh, instincts. To be quite blunt about it, in my view, uh, of the last five years of that movement, that. Uh, even though I know that there will be people, lots of people, in fact, most of the Herald's readers who will be enraged by that, I feel an obligation uh, to go right at that. And so I, I think in some perverse way, I'm uh, perhaps I shouldn't admit this, I actually like going right at that stuff in a newspaper where I know the readers will just detest me and cast aspersions on my mother. And <laughs> That's brave. That's brave. Uh, it, it takes a lot of courage to do that. You know, I, I think sometimes uh, it's easy for those of us who don't like that 
to think that that's that's easy, but um, it's hard to get. Well, can I tell you a quick story? criticism? Please, please. Yeah. Uh, the story is that you know, uh, I don't know. It's been three years ago when the children in these cages at the border uh, was disclosed, and I wrote a column about it. And I'm used on Tuesday mornings to to having uh, waking up and seeing comments that are just you know. Uh, cast aspersions on my family, my religion, my the size of my head, you name it. I never thought there was anything interesting about the size of my head, but some people apparently feel differently. Um, <laughs> on this particular morning, I woke up and, and to all of those comments were added a comment. Somebody had posted um, our address, our street address. So I called up the the editor in chief of the Boston Herald, whom I know, and I said, "Joe, listen, before I go down to, uh, to to Home Depot and buy a machine gun nest, I wonder if you wouldn't mind taking this off the website." And he laughed, and he did, and uh, that was we, he said, I, I, "On principle, I think people should probably have their own uh, machine gun nest these days." But there we are. Uh, and about twenty minutes later, somebody—that's the person who evidently was kicked off of the site—sent triumphantly a link where he had outdone himself. He had reposted uh, the address, but he'd added to it a picture of our home taken from the street with a picture of my wife and I superimposed in front of our front door. And a little picture of people who were supposed to be Hispanic, I guess, saying a family and a note saying, how many Mexicans live with you, Jeff? So it's interesting the way people react. I was aggravated. My wife was absolutely appalled at the fact that they had posted her uh, picture of her with her eyes closed. And I said, Joanne, I think, I think that you're missing the point here. I don't think that's the principle. <laughs> the principle so of objectionable feature of this. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. Anyway, there we are. What? what that, that is a scary, scary implication. Just really, uh, uh, I'm glad that you're safe and well, apparently. Uh, um, but uh, Jeff, as you think about all you've done in your extraordinary career, uh, what do you see as your superpower? Well, again, you are so thoughtful and kind and uh, flattering, and uh, you know nothing. Nobody likes uh, likes inaccurate flattery more than I do. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I will say something maybe a little bit contrarian, which is that. I actually think that the nuts and bolts of stuff is what matters. Uh, you are somebody who has achieved enormous amount by paying attention to detail, uh, by, by sweating the small stuff. I know that it's popular to say, don't sweat the small stuff. Unless you're a genius, and I am very, very far from that, there's nothing to be done but to sweat the small stuff. Uh, I sometimes think that, you know, there's a direct line between neurosis and excellence. Uh, neurosis is no guarantee of excellence, God knows, as I think I demonstrate on an hourly basis. But on the other hand, I, unless you're a genius, the excellence come, does not come without the neurosis, without the, the blocking and the tackling and the reading of things and, and the paying attention to details. So I actually think that um, the boring stuff uh, is what matters most. 
And if you skip the quote unquote boring stuff, the chances of succeeding at whatever it is you're trying to do, uh, you know, are, are much slimmer. Um, yeah. in, in, in the practice of law, for example, uh, where, in, you know, within, in a big firm where the cases are big and there are a lot of documents, I always had to laugh because people would talk about, well, document review. Let's just give the document review to, you know, some junior people or some paralegals. Just let them do. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. It's the documents that are the evidence. The evidence is going to be in some footnote someplace. Right, if yeah. you don't look at the damn documents, including the footnotes, you're not going to get the evidence. And you don't get the evidence, you don't win the case. That to me is a is a, is a an example of how there are not, in my experience, any shortcuts. Unfortunately, it's the slog that makes the difference. If you see what I mean. Oh yeah, yeah. I I, I think this this superpower of uh, sweating the small stuff is incredibly insightful. And you're right. Uh, I, I've been asking this question of my guests for five years, and this is a new one. Um, and yet I can see the extraordinary power of, of what you're talking about conceptually. Can you think of a specific example you're allowed to share with us that wouldn't violate c- client confidentiality or some other oath where you can say, yeah, this is the detail here had a big impact because I paid attention to it. Well, you know, I think it happens all the time, frankly, in the practice of law, especially litigation, where, as you can imagine, um, you know, you can think that you've looked at documents or that other people have looked at documents and they have told you they've looked at documents and you can say, okay, check documents. Somebody told me documents looked at And, and, and that is a prescription for, losing. Uh, In my experience, perhaps I'm just slow on the uptake. In fact, I'm surely slow on the uptake. I have to stick my face in documents and read them uh, many times. And all the time, it's the case that I catch stuff, including, uh, I think the dirty little secret is for litigators at the end of the case, rather than at the beginning, when you're standing in court and about to examine a witness and you look at some uh, document and see, wait a second, that person said the opposite there of what he is professing now. And therefore you cross-examine that person uh, with that document. And it's something that you never would have seen had you not read the damn document over and over and over again. That happens as frequently as sands that are on the seashore. Um, It it happened to me, quite frankly, um, last week while I was uh, examining a witness and I looked down the document that I had worked on and I saw for the first time, there was an entry on a legal bill, which was a piece of evidence that showed something important. And I thought, well, you know, my split second reaction was goodness, this probably isn't the best time to have noticed this, but no one has noticed this before. And here we are standing in court and I've noticed it. That happens to lawyers, I think, way more than they than they like to say. But the bottom line on all of it is you don't spend the time as a as a litigator looking at the evidence, scouring it 
you know, turning it around, reading it at different times during the course of the case, because of course, things occur to you differently as a case progresses, you're going to miss that stuff. There's no shortcut for that. There's no way around that. There's no clever Perry Mason skill that can substitute uh, anything or even close to substitute for sticking your face down in the paper and reading the damn stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a great example. Now, there are a lot of people, including I imagine a lot of lawyers you work with that don't want to do that, right? They want to let someone else do that. But at, at, and sometimes we can, we can let someone else do that. But oftentimes, I think to your point, that sweating the small stuff is our job. How would you coach people to do it better, uh, to to take it on in those times when no one else is going to do it and it has to be done? Well, in the case, a couple of things. First of all, my wife, thank God, is hugely indulgent because there have been times when I have come home with bankers boxes full of paper. And, and you know, this is this is nothing to be proud of, but I mean, I and post-its. And I basically take out documents and write, you know, which I think is not necessarily the most technologically efficient way to do it, but I need to do it that way. In the case of small and and I want to see what's in the emails. I want to see what's in the damn paper. Uh, and it's made a difference constantly. In the case of younger lawyers, I think you make a very good point. I think that with all the technology at their disposal, they're used to kind of whipping around. So, for example, when they have to write something, they'll say, well, I'll just take this section from this and I'll slide that over there and I'll move that over here and I'll whisk that over here. And that's not the same. And you as a writer of great skill know this. That's not the same as crafting something or thinking about it. Uh, You know, I remember one young lawyer said to me, um, oh, this is now 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Yeah, I'll crank something out about that. And I remember he thinking that hearing the phrase crank it out. And I, I basically the blood drained from every part of my body because it's like, that's not what we do is crank stuff out. I, I can't crank stuff out. I'd love to be able to crank stuff out. I am not a cranker. I think you have to craft stuff when you write it. And the same way when you're looking at evidence, yeah, I, I sort of say, listen, you may just be a first or second or third year lawyer. I don't care. This is your case. You have to think of yourself as responsible for drilling down and thinking about everything. And how can we use this piece of evidence? And what other things should we do? Uh, That's not, as you imply by your question, that's not always welcome uh, from young lawyers. Sometimes it is because they know they have to do that. But there are some people who, for one reason or another, find that, you know, drudgery. Uh, again, I don't know any alternative to embracing the drudgery. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Jeff, that's a really profound insight. And I'm so grateful. You know, I'm, I'm grateful for all I learned from you, but I'm, I, I will never forget the lesson of uh, not sweat, you know, sweating the small stuff as a superpower you shared today. Uh, Jeff, 
before we wrap up, and I'm so grateful that you would take the time to be with me, would you take just a minute and tell people how they can connect with you, how they can find your, uh, how they can find you at the law firm at Saul Ewing, tell them how they can find your column at the Boston Herald, uh, how they can maybe find you on social media, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's so nice of you. So in no particular order, my email address is uh, Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y dot Robbins, R-O-B-B-I-N-S at Saul, S-A-U-L dot com. The firm is Saul Ewing, S-A-U-L-E-W-I-N-G. The column is published every week on the Creators Syndicate, which is www.creators.com. Uh, and then um, uh, my telephone number is uh, uh, 617-912-0941. And I'm, of course, very happy to hear from anybody who is associated with you in any way, shape, or form. I admire <laughs> what you do a great deal. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to be with you. It's great to hear some of your old stories. Great to reconnect after our visit to Israel. And uh, I want to wish you every success in your work uh, as a columnist, as a thought leader, as a lawyer. We want to see you succeed and prosper. Thank you, Devin. Thank you so much for the invitation. All righty. Let's do some good. Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.